0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub. I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'll be the host of the channel for today. So I'm excited. Today, we're going to be talking to Elise Berman, the author of Talking Like Children, Language and the Production of Age in the Marshall Islands. This is um, a book that's a linguistic anthropological ethnography of life in the Republic of the Marshall Islands, or the RMI, as it's sometimes called. So if you hear us say that, it stands for Republic of the Marshall Islands. And it examines how age is created in and through interaction. So uh, with that said, maybe we can just dive on in. At least not everyone grows up wanting to write a book on how age is achieved in the Marshall Islands. Can you tell me a little bit about your biography and how you came to write this book? How did you get interested in this place and this topic?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I, uh, I was, first became interested in the Marshall Islands um, just because there was a program at my college when I was an undergraduate sending people to teach in the Marshall Islands um, when we graduated. So it was random in some sense. I had not planned nor I had I heard of the Marshall Islands before that, but that was the program that was available to me at Dartmouth and so I went there um and learned Marshallese and fell in love with it and got very intrigued by language um and by how kids were using language and how to understand uh the way the kids were speaking to me um so then when I went to grad school um, I just studied decided to study how sort of kids use language how they learn to use it um the difference between truth and lies uh And I did not go out to study H. I went out to study kids. Um, And then the idea sort of transformed. But so then I just ended up going back and back to the Marshall Islands and studying language and kids.
0: And you went back to the same place where you had been, you had been doing volunteer work? Yes. Or you had been teaching?
1: Yes. So I taught English and math. But no, I did not. So as a volunteer teacher, I was on Kili Island, which is um, where the Bikinian refugees were moved to. So Bikinian refugees are, um, when the U S tested their massive nuclear bombs in the Marshall islands, they tested them on, um, the two atolls, Bikini and Eniwetok. and, uh, uh, Bikini is where one of the atolls that the Marshallese were moved off of and they were moved on to Kili Island. So, so that's where I taught, uh, when I went back to do research, I did not, um, do the research on Kili partly because transportation has, um, gotten harder, actually, in the Marshall Islands over the years, not easier, surprisingly. Um, And so there used to be plane plane flights once a week to many of the outer atolls, and there aren't anymore. Um, But I went to an um, outer atoll, but one that was closer to the capital and that I could get to easier by boat.
0: Mm. And how did you get interested in kids? Were there kids just around? Or uh, what was it that kind of sparked your interest in that respect?
1: So I was always interested in kids, even before I went to the Marshall Islands. Um, I was I was an anthropology major, um, an undergraduate as an undergraduate, and I became interested in sort of how culture is learned and socialized um, and it seemed like you had to study kids to do that. And frankly, I just enjoy spending time with kids. And it's good as an anthropologist to enjoy spending time with the people who you are going to be spending a lot of time with. Um So the decision to work with kids was kind of separate from the decision to work in the Marshall Islands, although they ended up going along together.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I definitely know that doing my field work in rural Papua New Guinea, I had never really thought about spending much time with kids, maybe just because I'm a guy. And I just loved being around kids. I love spending time with children. In America, you know, we have a very uh, age segregated community you just never get a chance to to play with little kids. Um, They're not just around the way that they are in a lot of other places.
1: Absolutely. Um, And it's it's a lot of fun (laughs) to play with the kids out there. And also, um, given that there is this big tradition in the Marshall Islands of these American teachers, for better or for worse, um, that's another topic to discuss, of going into these outer atolls and teaching English. um, A lot of A lot of villages are used to having sort of an American teacher, roughly my age, there every year. And the traditional pattern of those American teachers is that they spend a lot of time playing with kids. And so it happened that when I went back to do my research, I was sort of in a role that was very familiar to people, even though I wasn't teaching.
0: So they kind of had a slot for you in their mind of... Of what that was. So, why are there so many American teachers? I think um, Peter Rudy at Gold is also an ethnographer who does work in the Marshalls. And I know he got started as a teacher as well. Why are there so many teachers going to the Marshalls?
1: Yeah, actually, Peter and I were there at the same time doing research, not same time teaching but um uh colonialism is the short answer (laughs) Um, and it's the real answer um it was it was and effectively still is an american colony right um and there are all these sort of neo-colonial ties um and uh so uh there's english is one of the main languages of education there and so they get american teachers to go teach English. Um, and that is because of the colonial American administration, right? That imposed English as the language of education for many reasons. Um, and then the ties, uh, the back and forth ties, both Marshallese coming here to the U S which is very, very, um, which is happening quite a lot, as I'm sure, you know, in Hawaii, um, is also because of these colonial ties.
0: So this really is an area where the U.S. has had a long presence and you're part of you're entangled in that colonial history when you do that work. And that's true for all of this region, which is which we would call Micronesia for better or for worse. It's an Austronesian cultural area, part of the broader cultural area. But it includes places like the Federated States of Micronesia, Guam, the northern Marianas Islands. These are sort of all part of this Micronesian culture area.
1: Absolutely. And that's how I ended up there in the first place. The teaching program, Um, I went to Dartmouth and the the program that they had to teach in the Marshall Islands was started, I believe, by someone from Kwajalein, which is the, um, Kwajalein is the American army base that's in the Marshall Islands that the U.S. essentially rents from the Marshall Islands and what's called the Compact of Free, um, Free Association. Um, But there's a lot of Americans living on Kwajalein. And so you have Americans who live on Kwajalein and then come back to the U.S. and then start these teaching programs and these links get um, tighter. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting um, to hear a little bit about your positioning. Maybe we should dive into the book and, and talk a little bit about that. You're interested in making an argument in this book about a fact, which is that age is negotiated in interaction in the marshals or age is achieved interactionally or something like that. And it also seemed to me like you wanted to make a point that your analysis of that fact or your your claim about that was going to advance anthropology or some other existing literatures, which I guess is not surprising because that's what we do when we write books and are on the tenure track. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about uh, what your central argument is in the book and sort of how you think it speaks to some of the broader debates out there and proves existing literature?
1: Um, Absolutely. Uh, So yeah, you summarized it well. (laughs) My argument is that age is not natural, but cultural. It's sort of a classic anthropological argument um, and something produced through language and interaction. Um, And I do get a lot of blank stares when I say this for some reason. Um, So I... I think it's helpful. Um, I guess people haven't thought about age in that way that much. And so I think it's helpful to compare um, my thinking about age to um, trends of thinking about gender. Um, gender as something that is performed, um, something that's produced that varies across cultures. Um, and so people perform age, and age is produced in a variety of ways. And I talk about a bunch of them in the book. So ideologies of age are produced. Do we view it as chronological or as relative chronological ideologies of age are very prominent in the U S like in school systems. Um, But relative ideologies of age are very, very important in the Marshall Islands who is older or younger than whom. And that is both an ideology that's important, but also your status is then negotiated in age because much of whether you're older or younger than whom, then another is produced through how you speak older people command younger people obey, the more you command, the older you become, <laughs> the more you obey, the younger you become. And essentially, uh, these are negotiations that take place in practice.
0: Um, yeah, you say, I think in more than one place in the book, age is power in the martial arts. Yes. It but is. I was a little, you, you say that, I think you said the the more you command the older you become wanted when some people say it's the other way around the older you are the more power you have can you maybe explain that a little bit
1: yes i think they go together um so yes in some way age is constrained and here you can think of it comparably to gender right um uh so in some ways yes the older you are the more you uh the the older you are, you're going to command more. But people don't always take on those roles, right? And how do you know who is older than whom anyway, if you don't have chronology? <laughs> uh, people have lived with people, each other for a long time, but they generally don't know each other's chronological ages. Sometimes they don't even know their own. And um, you have people moving between islands a lot as well. And so these, especially with kids, when you have people coming into an atoll, you um, And they haven't been there before. Um, Some people might be bigger. So you might judge it based on sort of size. um, But size doesn't always go on with chronology. And I know of many instances with kids where I tried to chart figure out their chronological age. I would track down their yellow cards, which is this thing that's issued um, by the health minister of health when they're born and supposedly states their chronological age on it. And people would tell me things like, oh, that person's older than me. And I would look at the yellow card and it would be not true. And people would say that they were older because they feared that person or that person commanded them or they acted in that way. Now, it's certainly true that At a larger level, when the age differences are even more dramatic with like um, adults and children, it's clear that the adults are older and the youth are not. Right. Um, But even then, exactly how much power people have, how much older they are, are things that also get negotiated in interaction. But it's not completely malleable. It is constrained by how people see you, right. And how you have seen yourself over time. So again, comparable to gender, if someone has been perceived as a woman for a long time and sees themselves as a woman, it's not like they can just change it. Um, but nonetheless, they are going to act in that they are going to continue to perform in the ways that mark them as woman. And they may try to change it. They may try to act in different ways and there may be pushback against that. Right. So, um, It's both produced and constrained, if that makes sense.
0: Like most things in life, there is some freedom of movement from culture. But then at the same time, their biological age, there are these developmental milestones that I guess are sort of biocultural and baked into us as a species. Well,
1: yeah, there are. There are debates as to exactly what those are and how they are. are, Those um, milestones are influenced by culture. right? So puberty is a big one. and that has a lot of environmental influences on it as to when it takes place, right? Um, and there's biological debate about sort of how you like the age of different organs, right? And whether they all mature at the same time frame. Um, there are questions. Teeth is the one that I've heard that is the most regular, actually. Um, so, uh, loop humans tend to lose their baby teeth and get new teeth at a very regular sort of time frame, but other things can be quite malleable and more malleable than we think.
0: And I should just say for people who are listening, I think we might have gotten a little bit of piano practicing earlier. Oh, yes, You're, I apologize. You, you have younger age people somewhere <laughs> yeah. else in the house. So that's not us that's not us mixing in uh, piano <laughs> music or anything into the podcast. Yeah. That's actually all the it's contingencies cool. of real life that we we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And and um you know, I guess a lot of people who think about the Pacific and aging, maybe they would think about Margaret Mead. You mentioned puberty; she famously made arguments about puberty. You're discussing the Marshall Islands as a place where there's a lot of uh, hierarchy. You talk about age and being able to command people, and I think for some people, they might have this image of Pacific Islands as a place where which are egalitarian, where people. Are sort of uh, carefree or something like that. but uh, And the, the, another sort of preconception might be that people are on isolated islands or removed, but then you also just said that that there's a lot of migrants. So can you tell me about how some of those popular perceptions match up to your own fieldwork?
1: Yeah, well, so, I mean, Mark and Mead worked in Samoa and actually Samoa's hierarchy is, has an even <laughs> has a perhaps more, even more entrenched uh, hierarchical system, at least with their chiefs than does the Marshall Islands. Um, but there are also very, a lot of similarities to um, Meade's research. Um, age, this seems to be true in a lot of the Pacific, but maybe not all of it. Age is a very, very important source of power in the Marshall Islands. And I did not go out there expecting to find that, but um And I don't think that that necessarily contradicts with sort of egalitarian ideas. Although the Marshall Islands is not an egalitarian society. There are chiefs and there are commoners. um, And that's the way it's supposed to be. People think they don't think it should be egalitarian, Um, but you owe respect to your elders and elders command youth. And that's the way it should be. (laughs) Or at least that's the way people think it is. Um, And that's the way sort of kinship systems function. Um, and there is a great deal of respect for elders and it's something quite lovely in many ways. Um, I know, I think that a lot of readers and perhaps a lot of listeners have a very negative view of power that elders shouldn't have power over youth. Um, and that is not the way people think of it. It's very, very much embedded in respect. Um, And the organization of kinship systems, the organization of food, uh, the organization of children, care, because along with power comes care and generosity. So just as elders um, get to command youth, they have the greater responsibility to care for them. And all of these things go together. And I think that's actually quite similar to some things that Margaret Mead described um, in Samoa. She also, I mean, she described famously, not necessarily age hierarchical systems, but sexuality, right? And freedom of sexuality. Um, And that doesn't necessarily contradict ideas of age and power either. Those can
0: go along with each other.
1: Um, What was the Mm -hmm. second? Oh, the second part of your question was
0: about migrants, right?
1: Uh,
0: Yeah, an inter-island movement.
1: Yeah. So people have always... Moved a lot. The Marshall Islands and much of Micronesia—they have always been seafaring peoples, and people have always moved between atolls um, and between what are now nations uh, a great deal. So uh, that is not new. Um, there is now a great deal of migration to the U.S. Uh, massive amounts of migration to the U.S., um, largely because of the neo-colonial relationship in this Compact of Free Association that the U.S. has with their former colony, which is the Marshall Islands. Um, and that is not one-sided migration. Um, people go back. I know several people who have come back. Um, and so there's sometimes circular migration, but, uh, it is a bigger out migration than it was in the past. And that is due to a lot of reasons, um, increasingly climate change, but that's not the only one.
0: Mm, Yeah. So, in in Hawaii, you know, we also um, like many other places in the Pacific. I think I have many students who see the positive sides of precedence of of hierarchy, the responsibilities that that um, older and senior people have to nurture younger people, and and they they don't see it as necessarily a negative at all. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I think in the I should say it puts a lot of pressure on you as a teacher to perform because you do owe a tremendous amount to your students. So yeah. Um, But your first chapter of your book tells this story um, in a slightly interesting way. In the Pacific, uh, you know, adoption is very common. When you look at global studies of adoption, the Pacific is kind of the hotbed for it. People are, the term in Hawaiian is Hanai, People are hanaid to different families all the time, and many people describe this as a positive thing where it's it's not about blood or primordialism. It's about nurture and um, spending time with other people. And there's something very nourishing and healthy about being able to have a wide uh, community of people who you can get along with. Um, but in your first chapter, you tell the story of a woman whose child was taken away from her by her senior relatives and it kind of um portrays a slightly more complicated and dare I say dark discussion of adoption and seniority can you tell me why you decided to tell that story and and right up front in the beginning of the book and um yeah were you i mean i guess some people would say that it's not a you know as an anthropologist you should paint a complimentary picture of your research subjects you know your hosts and some people might not find that super complimentary. I don't know how would you deal with those issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think I I do think that there's tension in adoption. I don't necessarily agree. So I don't agree that the woman's child was taken away from her. She was under pressure, and there is pressure um, imposed by elders to give. Sometimes that is different from being forced. Right. Um, and there is tension in a lot of these systems about who gets kids. Um, and those tensions are sort of embedded in the system where everyone is sharing kids. But I do think that I guess I view the idea that her child her child was stolen from her um, as a more ethnocentric pers- um, perspective than recognizing this very loving kinship system where people do share kids. and she didn't she didn't lose her kid, right? She shared her kid. And that did entail a loss on her part. It also entailed a gain on her part. Um, And so I think I, well, my goal was to show the tensions, but to show how understanding the tensions requires viewing family in a different light, that there are different types of tensions embedded in these kinship systems and different types of power. So, um, Many people I've talked to about Marshall's child-sharing practices are indeed shocked because most of what at least people tell me that happens is not that people offer up their kids, but people ask for them, right? Um, But that's because we operate with an assumption that birth parents are the sole owners of their children, people with the a priori rights to those children. Um, And I do think that's an ethnocentric perspective that depends on sort of ideas of the nuclear family, right? Whereas we can see it that Pinla did not have automatic rights to her kids, right? Her child was everyone's as it should be because everyone was taking care of everyone else. And in that sense, what we see, this is a very, very complicated negotiation and they are complicated negotiations, right? And they have sadness and they have benefits. um, And there's power involved in negotiations because there always is. (laughs) Um, um, And, uh, and in it, Um, The idea is to sort of change your mind away, both from the idea that a woman should have a priori rights to the kids, but also from the idea that it's not still a struggle. A lot of the pictures of adoptions of the Pacific have been like, oh, it's just easy. And that has not been my perspective when I've talked to people. Um, It is a common part of life. It is an expected part of life. It is, I would dare say, a good part of life. There are tons of benefits to this adoption system that you mentioned, both for the kids and for the family members, for PINLA, who had a child very young, right, and who got a lot of help with that child. Um, But it also can be a difficult one, right? Um, And there can be sadness involved with it as well. And... uh, and most women, I, I mean, I think maybe a good ex- marriage, I don't know if it's the best example, maybe sending a child off to college is the best example, um, where it's sad, it is sad, it's really sad for parents, but it's not bad just because it's sad. Um, or I thought of this example the other day and I don't, I don't think it's ex- exactly the best one, um, but when I think of my two kids and they have to share their toys, right? Sometimes they don't wanna share their toys. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's bad for them to share their toys or that it's not difficult to negotiate exactly how one's going to do that, right? Um, that there are tensions involved in that. But it's still, uh, and so it is a slightly different perspective on adoption because I think that like the way that the birth mothers often feel is sometimes left out. But I would argue that it's only sort of taking the Western lens of the nuclear family and that the Kinla should have the right sole right to decide what happens, that makes it seem sort of unsympathetic.
0: That's so interesting. I have so many thoughts about that. I I love the the sort of twinning you're pairing on one side, a sort of a sense of the ethnocentrism of our sort of Western slash American presuppositions with this, with a strong sense of the ambivalence of family relationships. And I do, you know, I, I, if I can get on one of my own hobby horses here, I'm often struck how in a lot of contemporary discourse uh, in the U.S. today, the the family, or maybe it's just in Hawaii, I'm not sure, the the family is seen as a place where there is no ambivalence, there is only love, there is only support, Mothers love all the time that they spend having their children and being, you know, uh, uh, nurturing their children Uh, and it's capitalism and the public sphere that's sort of the source of all evil. So I, I feel like there is a kind of a rejection of ambivalence and an unwillingness to recognize the ambivalence and negativity in family life that happens in some of our discourse today, particularly in Oh, I don't know. Maybe this is just I'm imagining people on Twitter. I'm sure people are much more common than this. But on the other on the other hand, you know, uh, I don't know if you know that famous article is multiculturalism bad for women. Um, But I guess I guess a lot of people would say, you know, it is my my Western presupposition that women should have control over their children. It's also my Western presupposition that they should be able to wear whatever they want and not be put in a burqa by ISIS people. So it is ethnocentric, but that doesn't mean I should have any less uh, moral courage or, or conviction. I, I suppose, you know, wanting to end racism against black people is also ethnocentric. But, I, right, I, right. I, you know, that's one I'm willing to stand up for. Right. So there, there right. are some complexities there yes, in, in your example. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, would, I should add with this particular example, um, I knew Penlis' family the best and so it's their story that I told, right? And adoption stories have to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, there There are ways um, the sort of the ways that people represent them. I know of I know of plenty of instances when people were asked for kids and they did not give them away, right? Um, firstborn kids tend to be given away more than other kids, right? So there's a lot of different elements that go into this particular story that led to Pinla giving this child away. There may have, it was a beneficial arrangement for them in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This was a wealthier family. Um, No one ever says that they wanted to give the child away. Um, Sometimes, but given the fact that sometimes people do and sometimes people don't, right? Uh, There are obviously reasons there, there are intricate reasons in each situation why sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so it would be incorrect to say she was forced. It would be correct to say that she, there was pressure placed on her. Right. Um, she if she had chosen to walk out of the house and go to her birth mother with that kid, she could have done that. Right. Um, so there's all sorts of sort of complicated things that go into all of, and we're never going to know exactly why a certain adoption, like negotiation takes place the way it does. Um,
0: yeah, there's a lot going on there. I, you know, just to make things even more complicated, I, I do know that, um, you know, because there is this history of people studying Marshallese, the, and there's there's also this discourse if you go to amazon and put in micronesia you you will find at least when i do i don't know what your cookies are like there's tons of self published memoirs of working in the marshall islands which portray the Marshalls as you know abject backwards having a, a culture that inhibits development um, that they are they're responsible for their own problems, I'm sure you've seen some of this, and i although I certainly do not think that you are producing that kind of story in this book, I think you're producing a really nuanced and uh and very detailed account of the ambivalencies of family life of power, love, support, and nurturance you know i I do wonder over time whether you will get some pushback from people who will read some of this in through that lens,
1: yeah
0: yeah we'll see <laughs> yeah. yeah you know uh there there are also other authors who have written uh works on the Marshalls like Joe Gens, his ethnography, Breaking the Shell, or Holly Barker's Bravo for the Marshallese, both books that you all readers should should read and teach to their students after they read and teach elise's book um and uh those books sort of take a, a position where they're focused on uh a sort of an active alliance with Marshallese projects of cultural resurgence. Holly Barker is very active with political activism on the part of Marshallese refugees, and Joe is interested in resurgence of voyaging. Um so so I think they're kind of they're kind of positioned in this in a, in a slightly different way in terms of wanting to make sure that they're actively trying to sort of promote those projects of Marshallese. Yeah. Yeah. And Pete, Peter, I think Peter Rudiak Gold's book is maybe captures a bit more of that ambivalence. Um, yeah. That you're talking about.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I, uh, so my new stuff is a little bit different than my old stuff, but I, when I went out, uh, There has been, I think Holly's and Joe Gans's books are wonderful um, and really, really important. Um, There is a dearth of literature on kids Mm -hmm. in the Marshall Islands, Um, basically none. And I basically went out there wanting to capture and understand sort of Marshall's childhoods. so I did not have a specific sort of activist agenda when I went out there, and then maybe because of my training at Chicago, frankly. Um, and, and you know, you don't.
0: I should just <laughs> yeah. say, I should just specify here: it, it's fine with me if you're not an activist. I don't think that's necessary. I think that is certainly a legitimate choice, and I, I really respect Joe and Holly's work. But I, I think you can still be a good person and write valuable work, and and uh, not be an activist. So, yeah. Yeah, Everyone should feel free to, to pursue any kind of project they want, as long as everyone consents to it. Yeah.
1: Um, but I think I also felt like there had been a lot of research on sort of um, the impacts of nuclear testing, which is wonderful, because the impacts of nuclear testing have been horrible. Um, and so we need that research. But um, somewhat less research on sort of some of these sort of basic issues about like how kids interact with others. Right? Um and so that, that is sort of what I went out to look at. Um, and I'm now moving in a different direction. Um, but um, in the different direction that I'm moving, I think that my previous research has been sort of very helpful because um, I'm now looking at some education stuff in the U.S. and understanding sort of these details of family life and adoption and all these things become really important um, mm. to be a, it, being able to sort of pick apart some of these issues of education.
0: You know, one of my big topics living in the Pacific and being an anthropologist is is trying to understand how it is that anthropology can contribute to knowing and studying the Pacific in the way that other disciplines can. I feel like if, if, um, if ethnic studies and Pacific Island studies and anthropology and the School of Hawaiian Knowledge, if we're all teaching the same thing, then we're not all making unique contributions. Uh, you know, I feel like there's got to be something that anthropology—and I—not I, and just got to be. I think there is something that anthropology can contribute that that other disciplines cannot. That makes it valuable in that interdisciplinary conversation. You know, instead of us being the, the master knowers of the exotic Pacific or something, we we are one of many disciplines that can contribute. And one of the real things that I liked about your book was that you showed us how hierarchy shame, uh, consent, how these things work and how they work to make wonderful lives and how they function as sort of linguistic and interactional systems in a way that I think some people who uh, work with Micronesians might not be able to understand. They might look at, you know, for instance, the the silence of people who are junior in the relationship as a sign that Marshallese, you know, culture is an impediment to success because people don't want to to pipe up. And I I think you do a great job of explaining that this is not just some sort of backwards culture where people are mindlessly obedient or unwilling to become entrepreneurs or whatever it is that that American capitalists think are wrong with Marshallese, but but this is a a complex way of life that works for people and has its own inner logic that you can that you can understand, which I I really appreciated that as someone who has to work with Micronesian people all the time.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks yeah.
0: for that. Uh, but, but in order to do this, you strapped cameras to kids' heads. Is that right? There yes. was some method?
1: Yes, I did. They loved it actually. Um, so um. I, so I did a lot of work with kids and with adults, not just with kids and, um, I started out sort of doing the, I picked some focal kids sort of in a classic language socialization method. And I followed them around with video cameras, but it didn't work that well. um, Partly because the kids move really fast and it's hard (laughs) to like get your, get your tripod and your video camera and like get down the island with them. Right. As they're, because they go where they want. Right. So um, I had this little, um, people who like do sports sometimes wear cameras on their helmets. Right. So something similar, but I put it on a headband um, and the kids would put it on and sort of go around their lives. And then I would go find them half an hour later and take it off. And they, they loved wearing the cameras actually. Um,
0: so you like go pro to yeah. a bunch of 10 year olds. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and then, I mean, so there's benefits and negatives to such a method. Um, the audio isn't as good as you would get with uh with a sort of tripod video camera and, um, lapel microphones. Um, the video can be a little choppy <laughs> because the kids are running around. Um, you get to see what the kids are looking at, which is both good. Uh, cause you see what they're paying attention to and bad. If they happen to something, other interaction happens to be happening. That's interesting. And you can't see it, but you can hear it because the video is not pointed in that direction. So, um, but it got a lot of really rich data actually
0: uh, most of the most of the chapters in the books for people who have not read it they're just stories of kids playing or doing something sometimes with you sometimes without you they're just little vignettes of maybe an hour or two of children's lives and there's there's tons of quotations it's like a sort of a a dialogue uh i'm sorry i'm not very good at describing sort of uh style and rhetoric but it's it's really just each chapter is the story of children trying to share a toy or buying soda or going to uh going to fetch their older sister or something like that
1: yes i did that purposefully um i tried to make the book into a series of stories um Partly because of the way I was writing for, I wanted undergraduates to enjoy it. And partly because I really feel like anthropologists, we have so many stories, Um, but we often tell them so poorly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that's really a loss because our data is just, all of our data is stories. And if we told them as stories, um, I feel like people would pay a little more attention. Um, So yeah, I purposely sort of, it was from a dissertation. I purposely rewrote the dissertation as a, a series of stories, and um, a lot. Of, some of the stories come from like an hour, half an hour of videotaped interaction, and I would transform the interaction into dialogue, so it sort of reads like a novel, uh, hmm. which I think is a, as a legitimate a way of representing speech as a transcript.
0: Um, I, I'm sure the vast majority of human beings who are not linguistic anthropologists. Would agree with you on that one. I mean, it has, um, it, but it, it doesn't have a lot of the, those, those highly edited transcripts that you see in linguistic anthropologists uh, work. It does seem like a story, but it really does have that very fine grained, like she said this and the reason that she said this and not that was because if she said this, it meant that she was junior to that person which meant that that person had to be the one to, to go talk to this other person. It really has that quality of the best linguistic anthropology where you, you're you explaining the moves that are being made, the sort of dramatic micro moves, the sort of emotional and social moves that would elude someone who was not an expert in in that culture. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, that was and my you, goal.
0: But- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I th- I thought it was I thought it was pretty good the chapter where you try to buy a can of soda um when when no one is allowed to know that was great i having uh, having lived in a place where you know it's very hard to own things because you have to share them constantly uh in Papua New Guinea uh that highly resonated with me can you maybe just maybe just tell people the story of what what goes into trying to buy a soda on an atoll Well so
1: there's not very much soda on an atoll <laughs> Um, and given that there's not very much, um, you are expected to share things just like you're expected to share your kids. Right. Um, and there's pressure to share, just like there's pressure to share your kids. Um, and so if you want to buy a soda and somehow drink it without giving it to everyone, you have to hide it and not let anyone else see it, um. I did not know that this story comes from a time very early in my field work um, when a friend of mine asked me to go get a soda with her. And I said, sure. And I didn't realize all the difficulties that would go into that. Um, And so we ended up talking to people and she ended up sort of using me as a kid and making me talk for her. And um, so that I would be the one one responsible for telling people, oh, we're going to go get soda. And then I would be forced to give it to them. So I ended up lying constantly because I found myself in these positions where I had to tell people, pretend I wasn't going to go get soda, pretend I was doing something else. And then we sort of rode out of town on our bikes and we had the soda and then we couldn't get the soda back into town um, because, if we carried it into town, we would have to give it to everyone. So then I found myself stuck in the woods with a couple of other women. um, And we were debating for what seemed to me a very long time, what to do with the soda, Um, whether to drink it there in the woods, which was my idea and um, some of the other women's ideas or whether to bring it back to our houses. um, And, um, You know, people don't necessarily say things directly. So we were all sort of talking, not talking over each other, but saying things indirectly. And finally, I just gave up um, because I'm an impatient American. I was like, I'll just take the sodas back. And I stuck them in a plastic bag on my bicycle and hoped that no one saw them and got back to my house and thought that everything was great. And then lo and behold, a couple of months later, a friend of mine was talking to me and she was like, why didn't you give me soda? And I realized that I had just completely sort of messed up everything that one should do um to appropriately sort of get out of giving in the marshals
0: yeah. arts. <laughs> yeah there's a, in the united states we have this sense that you should be honest and forthright and and tell people what you think but in in the in the marshals the way that you describe it and i totally believe this sharing is mandatory if you have two of something and someone sees it they're going to take one and you cannot say no. So a lot of a lot of people, like I, th- I think you say at one point, people saw that you had soda, and so then if they had seen it, they could ask for it. But since they decided to let you have it, they would just act like they had not seen it.
1: So, so uh, yeah,
0: right, yeah. So there was this sense in which people were choosing to have the have a- one kind of action happen and. and have another kind not so that their sort of lack of knowledge was produced in interaction, even though they knew that there was something that they've decided that they didn't know so that you could keep stuff.
1: Yes. So, of course, at the time, I thought they didn't see the soda, right? Because no one said anything to me about it.
0: But that meant everyone saw it. Right.
1: (laughs) So I assumed that no one saw it. And then I discovered later that they had saw seen it, but no one had bothered to say anything. And I think there are a couple of things going on there. Um, we were on bikes, so we were moving pretty quickly. So it was hard to yell things after me. I was a bit of an outsider, an American. so people might have been more nervous um, about sort of demanding things from me at that moment. And I think the fact that they were in the plastic bags, actually, um, makes it a little bit different than if you're just sort of carrying them in your hands, walking past people. It makes not enough of a buffer, um, but at least a little bit that it inhibits requests uh, a little bit.
0: Yeah. You get the very subtle sense in which people are constantly negotiating. What is the case? Because if some things are the case, then they can do some things. But if it's the other way, Yeah, it's it's very subtle and it's it's just very different, I think, to what a lot of people in the mainland U.S. are used to. Yeah, it kind of reminds me at some point as if like uh, in some kind of like thriller or Hitchcock novel or something like I know that, you know, but yeah, it's interesting. And and when you decided to do those chapters, it was because you wanted to make this book. Uh, suitable for classroom use I will say it's very thin it's uh, the the body text runs to just about 154 pages so it's it's you could easily teach it and fit it into a semester of teaching
1: no I really I was actively trying to make it suitable for classroom yes I wanted people to read it and I will say that that probably affected so the chap the first chapter you were talking about the um so when you're writing something like this, you don't necessarily try to make it dramatic, but you're telling a story right in each chapter. And so you're using sort of various nonfiction narrative guidelines. And I read a bunch of nonfiction narrative books about how to use, um, how to sort of, um, develop, how to develop a story, how to leave, how to not tell the end of the story in the beginning, how to keep people interested, um, the narrative arc and all sorts of things like that. Um, For
0: our our graduate students out there who are trying to do this or trying to turn their books into dissertations, do you have any reading recommendations, one one or two books that you thought did a good job of helping? Yes,
1: it's called um, Narrative Storycraft by Jack Hart is the main one that I used. Um, But I think so. So, yeah, that was my goal sort of in transforming the story, the books, the stuff from my dissertation to these chapters. Um, and, um, and I think in doing that, I kind of run some of the risks that you talked about before with the first chapter, right? Um, like if I had hidden the ambivalences that I saw, right, um, about kinship behind sort of anthropological jargon, it's harder to see them. Um, in some ways, <laughs> not that it's harder to see them, but they become a little less clear. Right. Um, and in some ways I wonder if I should have done that, <laughs> but also trying to tell a story. And so it's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting sort of um, negotiation to play.
0: Yeah. I mean, you definitely make your point up front. The, the book is, I mean, one of the things that I noticed, maybe I chalked it up to you coming from the more linguistic side of things the book is just relentlessly structured. It's full of, well, signpost sentences that say, in this book, I claim that. My purpose in this chapter is to, every paragraph starts out. I mean, this. I'm saying these things as a compliment, Elise. <laughs> you know, you. every, every <laughs> paragraph starts off, you know, there are many ways in which Marshallese avoid giving. First, second, furthermore, in conclusion, and it's just sort of a clinic, in terms of how to how to write sort of a structured prose so there is a there is a narrative side to it but there's also a very um sort of well-structured academic expository side to it if anything like when reading it i kind of got the sense that it that it was your thesis but radically dehydrated so that all of the all of the 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 pages of discussion about one way of giving just kind of got sucked down into first food is often hidden inside containers. Uh, it's just, I got that feeling of, of dehydration when I was reading. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's what I tried to do. It is a first book, right? So um, things change, right? When one gets to one second book.
0: But. Yeah. I mean, you have to do, you have to, you have to make decisions about what your book is for and why you're writing it and what you want to do in it. And then you need to be able to execute that. And then for other book projects, they might have different kinds of frames or goals, and then you can do something else as well. So, you know, uh, first books, I I don't know, because I do this podcast, I, I interview a lot of people. And, and uh, sometimes it's hard for people to to keep their ambition in check in their first book, their kind of whole life is in it because it's the only book they've written so far. I definitely would say that I was guilty of that in my first book. Whereas I think, I think there, there's a strong craft component to the way your book is written where I can see that you, you had a goal and you, and you did it. Uh, It's not uh, your philosophy of life in kind of, you know, crammed into the epilogue or anything like that. Yeah. You, you, you know, at the same time, we talk about it being well-written. You use terms like language ideology and index and texicality. You, like me, are a Chicago student, and you kind of have this linguistic anthropology, semiotic approach. That approach is kind of famous, I think, for outsiders as being incredibly jargony and and sort of saying things that lots of other people have already said in more normal ways. So one of your particular challenges was taking that Chicago semiotics, or maybe it's now a Miss Chicago semiotics uh, approach and sort of bringing it down into English. Did you think about how you would do that and sort of your place in that that tradition, how how you would um, try to, to explain to people this very complex approach and sort of a more easy to read language?
1: Yeah, I did. I mean... I tried to, so I tried to minimize the jargon, but I still had some, I mean, I have to get tenure, right? Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> the book is serving several goals, right? Um, and uh, I think it helps. So I'm, I'm a Chicago grad, but I uh, was at the Department of Comparative Human Development, not anthropology. Um, and so I took, I mean, I took a lot of the semiotic classes over in anthropology and in human development, but we have to talk to sort of sociologists and psychologists and human development too um, and I think that it sort of trains a different way of talking about things like index and um, icon and things like that um, so I tried I guess I tried to use a minimal jargon and I tried to define the jargon <laughs> that I used mm-hmm. if that makes sense I didn't think I could get rid of it altogether because I am trying to make some theoretical arguments in the book as well um, and to do that you need to talk about. And indices are very important to sort of the theoretical argument that I'm making about how age sort of is produced.
0: Yeah, we were talking a little bit about this earlier. Your your goal is to make an intervention in theory, which, as you said, is one of the things that you want to do for um, getting tenure, but also trying to trying to make theory better and having better ways of understanding the world is is uh, to me a perfectly legitimate choice. So can you maybe just as we close talk about you know sort of uh whose work you're sort of trying to improve or how how this book is not just about the Marshallese, uh even though I'm I'm as a pacific person I'm um, I'm interested in that end. What where are you trying to take that theoretical conversation about age?
1: Um I want to make age more prominent, not only in anthropology, but um, I think we can think beyond anthropology too when we're getting into sort of politics and things as well. So, anthropological theory is, I wouldn't say it's neglected age, but it has under theorized age compared to things like particularly gender and race and to a certain extent class. And I think this has a number of implications. Um, one, and we can think practically outside of anthropology, um, age is enormously naturalized in much of our social institutions in life. And although people have started to think beyond the academia about, um, sort of issues of gender and race, this naturalization of age is rarely questioned. So the most obvious candidate for this is the school system, Right which, um, runs on an age segregated system according to chronological age, right? Um, and most of us protest at the idea of gender or racially segregated classrooms, but we have chronologically age segregated classrooms and we think this is natural and just, um, I'm not necessarily saying we should not have age chronologically age segregated classrooms, although it's new. We didn't have it. It didn't exist in the 1800s, right? But it is a, um, particular approach to age sort of embedded in our ideologies that affects the way we organize society without necessarily even thinking about it. And then when um, people talk about things and um, I have two young kids, so I hear this from parents all the time, things about like developmental delay, like kids who are behind in school, all sorts of things. All of this is dependent on this idea of chronological age that just seems so natural to everyone. Um, Then we can go beyond that um, beyond social institutions to thinking about like other things that anthropologists study, race, gender, subjectivities, power, agency. um, And I would argue that by neglecting the aged components of them, we're not really studying those phenomena. Uh, So agency is an obvious one because that's what I talk about in the book a lot. Um, But what I'm arguing is that agency is aged, but it hasn't necessarily been studied like that. People who take on different age uh, positions in society, have different forms of agency and can do different things. And to understand sort of how action and interaction in social life takes place, you have to look at sort of all of this together. Um, And by taking age in this way and thinking about how gender changes across the life course, how subjectivities change across the life course, then sort of um, we already think about culture as dynamic, but it becomes really, really dynamic. (laughs) because um it is very sort of complicated every sort of element of culture takes on myriad of different forms and age is one of those things that people are constantly changing in their own age right or at least we perceive it as such and so they're constantly sort of moving through different sort of subjectivities all of which are culturally formed and i think um it places all of these processes in a sort of different light. Um, and that actually brings me to, oh my gosh, I'm sorry about that.
0: No worries. You turn telephone. that off. It <laughs> Should it take to it to off the hook.
1: Um, so, um, if we think about Pacific anthropology, there are some things that have been prominently studied in Oceania, um, such as gift giving, right? But few, if any of those studies look at how gift giving is aged, um, we agree it's gendered now. So Marilyn Strith- Strithern taught us that.
0: Um, yes, and Rena Letterman. Yes, I will yes, yes, absolutely.
1: Um, but like my, in my research, children are invaluable economic agents uh, because they are children. And as people who are different than adults, they can do different things. And it turns out those different things that they can do are really crucial, like carrying goods around the village. The adults can't do that. Um, And so a lot of these giving practices that we have discussed, at least in the Marshall Islands, don't take place without the children as animators um, and are dependent on all these people of different ages interacting. Um, And so this suggests that like a lot of the classic anthropological things that we have studied in Oceania, as well as elsewhere, um, are incorrect. incomplete if we don't take sort of age dynamics into account.
0: Yes, I have noticed that the number of sessions on aging in the Pacific at the at ASAO the Pacific Anthropology meetings has has increased as prominent members near retirement and suddenly become interested in aging. I yeah I suspect that you know you, you talk about how aging is understudied and I agree. Um, but it, it seems to me to today, like maybe one of the things that your work dovetails into is the way in which age and power are now being discussed in social media and contemporary politics in a way they might not have been before, you know, the, the hashtag, okay, boomer, or the, the sort of, um, the way in which, uh, millennials feel correctly, in my opinion, that they've been, uh, screwed by the great recession, you know, uh, There's always been generational talk in America, um, but I feel like maybe now in popular culture, people are thinking about cohorts, you know, uh, generational cohorts and their power and their sort of structural place in a way they they haven't before.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say a lot of this is after I wrote the book. (laughs) So um, I would, yeah, think about how that's happening. Um, I should also say that there's a lot of work in anthropology and other things on both aging and on kids. Um, um, I think we need to sort of move beyond looking at the life stages and take and I build on some of my mentors like Jennifer Cole um, in this and thinking about age itself as an analytic. So getting away in the parallel here again with gender is not studying women or men, but studying gender. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that's um, a lot of anthropology, at least thus far, we've been studying kids. i am involved in ACYG, the anthropology of childhood and youth interest group. Right. Or we've been studying adults, but those, the people who study elders and the people who study kids don't really talk to each other because it's assumed that their topics are different, even though the general category is similar. Um, mm.
0: yeah. Yes. And, so you know, I we're coming to the end of our time now. I don't want to keep you for for uh, any longer than we have to. But you you mentioned some new projects. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on now?
1: So I'm now I'm working on Marsh's migrants in the U.S. Um, in the South Central U.S. and I'm looking at um, migrants in schools um, and sort of interpretations of the schools on their like language practices um, and uh, and. Ideas about the marshley's kids as well. And there's sort of a lot of misinterpretations, um, it seems to be in the school system of many of the things that I talk about in the book, like Marshley's family practices, <laughs> adoption, various things like that. And there also seems to be a fair amount of sort of misinterpretations of language, um, including some things that I hadn't thought about at all before, such as um, sort of the form of world English that has taken place in the Marshall Islands as a result of American colonialism. And um, consequently, the type of English that Marshallese kids might be speaking in the U.S. and potentially in the Marshall Islands, uh, sorry, in Hawaii, although um, I'm not as familiar with the Marshallese there. Um, But uh, yeah, Marshallese are very disadvantaged in the school system here. So um, I'm starting to take a look at sort of how these things transfer.
0: Interesting. It sounds like a really great project, bringing together some of the uh, work that you've done in the marshals on language and age and social structure, and then running that up against what happens when those people sort of encounter a culture which is different, but which they have a long history of connection with. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our talk. I thought it was great. And I I really do think that your book is uh, worth a look at well as well for people who are interested in trying to teach something on the Pacific or learn a little bit more about uh, Marshallese or Micronesians. So Elise Berman, thank you very much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.